You're listening to an episode of The Rewind, a podcast series by the Hounstein Center for Presidential Studies in Grand Rapids, Michigan. This episode features audio from the 2023 Hidden Wounds of War Conference on May 11, 2023. This particular episode is from the keynote by Dr. Leah Didion called When Work Wounds, Addressing Professional Trauma. If you'd like to learn more about this event or our speakers, please visit gbsu.edu slash hc slash hww23, which is linked in the description below. We hope you enjoy this episode. This afternoon's presentation is When Work Wounds, Addressing Professional Trauma with Dr. Leah Didion. Dr. Didion completed her uh, psychology at uh, Pepperdine University, an internship at Washington, D.C. Veterans Affairs Medical Center in 2009. Dr. Didion completed PTSD postdoctoral fellowship at the Salem, Virginia VAMC, where she first learned DBT and was a member of the DBT consultation team. She then moved to Germany to work with active duty service, service members and their families at Landstuhl Regional Medical Center. Dr. Dinian spent a year working at the Trauma Veterans Affairs before returning to the Washington DC Veterans Affairs Medical Center as a psychologist in the PTSD clinic from 2014 to 2021. During those years, Dr. Didion developed and created a full model DBT team, the first of its kind at the DCVA, and led the team and clinical service as well as co-leading groups and providing supervision and consultation to trainees and colleagues. In 2021, Dr. Didion left to pursue private practice full-time. Dr. Didion now co-owns a group dedicated to providing culturally affirming evidence-based treatments for trauma as well as trainings, supervision, and consultation. In private practice, Dr. Didion has developed specialties in working with journalists, members of the AAPI community, and those who have experienced intergenerational trauma. Dr. Didion identifies as a biracial Asian and white and strives to bring conversations about identity and intersection into her clinical work and to trainings and consultation. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Leah Didion to our stage. Good afternoon. Uh, I am overjoyed to be here. Um, the topic of my address today, as was mentioned, is when work wounds, addressing professional trauma. And a little bit about me before I jump in, um, and some of this will be a repeat from that introduction, but my name is Leah Didion. Um, I'm a clinical psychologist, and I identify as a cisgender, het, biracial, Japanese and white um, woman. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I'm the child of two school psychologists. So I was one of those weird kids that knew at the age of six that I wanted to be a therapist, um, something that I deviated from only once. There was a time in middle school that I really thought I wanted to be an astronaut instead. And I tried really hard to make that happen. So I even took an aptitude test and I answered all of the questions the way I thought 
someone would answer them if they were going to be led to a career in science. And I eagerly awaited those results. And when they came back, they said, you are uniquely qualified to be in the helping professions. And have you ever considered being a therapist? So it was around that time that I figured I should just accept it. You know, a standardized test knew it and the universe knew it. And, and I knew it too, that I wanted to be a therapist. I wanted to help others. And I knew also that I wanted to be a trauma therapist in particular, um, even before I really had a term for, for what that was. Um, a fact that I attribute to my childhood and upbringing. So I had three parents growing up. My mom uh, was an immigrant to this country. And when she decided to stay in the US, she was disowned by her family. Later reconciled, it's all fine now. But uh, my biological father, who was a World War II veteran and grew up in extreme poverty during the Great Depression. And my other father, who was a Vietnam War combat medic, who came back with significant PTSD, um, and then also went on to work as a registered nurse, uh, working with children's cancer wards, psychiatric facilities, ERs, um, and in the prison system. So I knew at a pretty early age that there is great suffering in this world, and that there are people who make it their mission to help. And so therapy and service were in my blood from the earliest age, uh, even in middle school when I didn't want it to be and I wanted to do something else. Um, I sought out practicum sites, as was mentioned, um, that helped me to specialize in trauma. So I completed my internship at the Washington DC Veterans Affairs Medical Center specializing in trauma. Um, I completed my postdoctoral fellowship at the Salem, Virginia VA, specializing in PTSD research and treatment. I worked at Longstuhl Regional Medical Center, uh, which is the largest US Army facility or largest US hospital outside of the US. And I, there I got a chance to work with active duty service members, um, GS civilians, their families, et cetera. I did a very short stint at the Tampa VA at the Women's Clinic. Um, before coming back to the Washington DC VA where I worked in their PTSD clinic. And was there until 2021. But I opened a private practice in 2020 because the community where I work, the DC, Maryland, Virginia area, there really is a dearth of clinicians who are trained in evidence-based trauma-focused care and even fewer clinicians who identify as people of color. And so I wanted to be able to expand who I was working with. And then in 2021, I uh, co-founded the Trauma Resilience and Education Center of Greater Washington, DC, or Trek DC, because that's a huge mouthful. And um, like was mentioned, this is a, a group practice that is dedicated to culturally affirming evidence-based care um, for survivors of trauma. And in there, um, I've been able to form specialties uh, and work with members of three-letter agencies, healthcare professionals and first responders. Um, I was fortunate enough to be part of the first cohort of a pilot program that taught clinicians the cultural and privacy um, training to work with journalists who have experienced trauma on the job. Um, and I also have just started a contract with the, okay, let me get the acronym right. It's the WMATA, the Washington Metropolitan Authority, uh, Transit Authority, 
to provide services to uh, metro train and bus operators who have experienced trauma while on the, on the job, who otherwise would have a very difficult time accessing care. And since we opened our doors, uh, figuratively, we're all online, but since we opened our doors in 2021, Trek DC has grown to now having four psychologists, three social workers, a psychology uh, postdoctoral fellow, and a psychology extern. And that, that expansion in such a short amount of time has really told me a couple things. One is that I am incredibly exhausted and I need a break. Uh, the other, though, is that there is such a need in the community to have really quality trauma-informed training. Um, when we first offered our psychology externship at Trek DC, we had 25 students who applied. And this past year, we had over 50. So students and trainees are clamoring for this information. And it really just made me wonder, why is it so hard to receive training and experience working with trauma survivors when almost everyone who will walk through your door, if you are a clinician, will fall into that category. And of course, I, I get that there are logistic obstacles to including trauma-informed training in you know, certificate programs and doctoral programs. There's lack of resources. There's lack of standard training and curriculum. There's lack of diversity within the professors, because if you had more diverse professors, there would probably be more of an emphasis on trauma, since it's ubiquitous within minoritized communities. Um, but I am trained in several evidence-based therapies, cognitive processing therapy, prolonged exposure, EMDR, acceptance and commitment therapy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and each of those trainings I had to seek out on my own and lobby for and advocate for me being able to, to take, and in some cases pay for on my own as well. And that's fine. Um, I wanted to be a trauma clinician. But I started my training knowing that I wanted to be a trauma clinician and not even having any exposure to any of those therapies. Um, I didn't even have any training in trauma-informed care. And initially, it made sense to me that I would need to seek out those trainings and gain that level of expertise because um, I would be working with a highly specific population of people seeking care to deal with the after effects of trauma and PTSD. Quick side note, while working in the VA and in the DOD, um, you know, I was working in PTSD clinics and it was sometimes hard for me to remember that not everyone experiences trauma and PTSD because I was working with such a specialized population. The people walking through the door had experienced these um, traumatic incidents and were specifically seeking care. Um, I had this notion that just everyone does, but I, I did have to remind myself frequently that actually the base rates are much lower. But then for another presentation, I actually did look up the statistics and a couple studies found that an estimated 70 to 90% of people will experience at least one traumatic incident in their lifetime. And that took a moment to really sink in for me that 70 to 90% of us are going to experience a traumatic incident, at least one. And I would hazard a guess that those numbers have risen dramatically during COVID. So, oh, I'm sorry, let me grab this. In an article by Staglin in 2021, 
he stated that in the US, the reported risk for post-traumatic stress or PTS, one of the major mental health issues related to trauma is 83% higher than pre-pandemic levels. And not surprisingly, healthcare workers are especially in danger. Globally, more than one in five have experienced PTS, anxiety, or depression during the pandemic. Which those numbers are staggering. And again, I'm sure by now, since this was written in 2021, that those numbers have risen. And not covered in this article is the fact that the amount of trauma that children and that we all have faced are gonna have these ripple effects for years and years to come. And clinicians will be called upon to help, uh, help them for years to come. So I wanted to do a little more of a dive to find out how are we all doing? So I found that a 2020 survey by the American Psychiatric Association, I'm sorry, American Psychological Association found that 78% of adults say the pandemic is a significant source of stress in their lives. Two thirds reported that their stress levels increased as a direct result of the pandemic. And I should mention that this data was collected in August of 2020. So that's before we knew that schools wouldn't reopen, before there were vaccines that were readily available. I mean, we were about six months into the pandemic. And almost half of respondents noted worsening health, including impacts to their physiological health, their mental health, as well as behavioral changes, things like getting easily angered, yelling at loved ones. Never happened in my house, of course. Uh, and what can't be captured is the additive effects of so many people experiencing this level of stress or the ripple effects of when individuals face this level of stress, how does that ripple out into their communities, into um, those that they encounter? And then what is the additive effects on their, on their bodies, on their minds? And of course, that wasn't the only thing going on in 2020. So almost two thirds of respondents noted that healthcare was a significant source of stress. More than half reported that mass shootings were a significant source of stress. About half reported that climate change was a significant source of stress and living with uncertainty in our nation was a significant source of stress for almost two thirds of those surveyed. And of course, BIPOC individuals experienced additional stress in the form of discrimination and violence and then worry about discrimination and violence. So flash forward to 2022. And again, the American Psychological Association surveyed individuals in the US and found that 64% report their rights being under attack. 76%, so up from 65, say that uncertainty in the nation is a significant source of stress. 62% cite racial climate as being a significant source of stress and almost three quarters of individuals, so up from 62%, report that mass shootings or gun violence in general are significant concerns. And here's what I found incredibly interesting. Stress is so high that about 20% of respondents report things like forgetfulness or inability to concentrate or difficulty making decisions. And when stressed, three quarters of individuals report that their lives are negatively impacted, including impacts to their mental and physical health. 
And while I'm sure those numbers are not a huge surprise to those of us in the audience because we see this um, frequently, it, I did find it noteworthy that 34% of individuals say that their stress is completely overwhelming on most days. Unsurprisingly, this impacts um, communities of color and marginalized communities like the LGBTQIA communities more than their counterparts. And 27% of people surveyed said that their daily stress is so high they cannot function. And again, those are disproportionately people who are under the age of 35 and people who are um, members of minoritized communities. And that's particularly important for this talk because those are the folks who are entering the workforce or who are early in their stages of their career. So trauma doesn't seem to be such a niche specialty anymore like I had originally thought and when I started out in my career. In fact, as we're seeing, almost everyone has experienced significant levels of stress and trauma. And the past few years have worsened those experiences. And while, being, while PTSD treatment may still be considered a specialty treatment, being trauma-informed shouldn't. Not at this point. But let me do a quick poll. I realize those on the live stream may not be able to participate, for, but for anyone in the audience, how many clinicians are there in the audience? Therapists, mental health professionals. I'm terrible at, at assessing numbers, but okay, you know, maybe like a third or so of folks are clinicians in the mental health field. Whether or not you're a clinician, how many of you work with or interact with trauma survivors? Okay, yeah, so pretty much everyone. And my guess is if I expanded that out to how many people have lived experiences of trauma or family members, I'm assuming everyone would raise their hand. How many of you received any kind of formal trauma-informed training, either while in school or on the job? Yeah, my, my hand would have gone down too. Okay, so a couple people, but truly only a couple people. So as a therapist, it's almost a foregone conclusion that if you get a new client who walks through your door, they will have either experienced trauma in their lifetime or they will. And yet, so few of us are receiving any kind of training in how to be trauma-informed. And there have always been groups and professions that experience higher rates of trauma, but these numbers are increasing and also, it's not limited to these professions anymore. But according to an article published in October of 22, these were the seven highest professions uh, with the highest rates of trauma. And if you give that a quick look, as you can see, the professions that are highest at risk are those who are directly responsible for helping others which means that when they suffer, we all suffer. Doctors and nurses obviously faced unprecedented stress in the wake of COVID. There are rising incidents of journalists being the direct targets of online hate and harassment. First responders are being called in for more and more school shootings and gun violence. And the next day, everyone has to go back to work.
Now imagine that our first responders, our healthcare professionals, our firefighters, those responsible for reporting the news are experiencing the same levels of stress that we saw on the previous slides. I mean, how, how are we impacted when a police officer is so stressed that they have trouble concentrating? Or what's the impact of a healthcare professional who is um, having difficulty making decisions? And if they're experiencing these symptoms and stressor, how much harder is it for them to seek treatment when their jobs are on the line? I mean, not unlike those who are in combat, it's a liability to experience symptoms of stress even when you are in a job that almost guarantees that you will. And that, I would argue, is what takes trauma and elevates it to PTSD, especially for those in these professions. So military veterans, as we probably all know, um, have high rates of PTSD ranging from about 11 to 20%, depending on the study, uh, with military sexual trauma increasing those rates. The rates of PTSD in law enforcement vary widely depending on the study that you look at, but somewhere between 7 to 35%. And similar to veterans, law enforcement personnel report that it's the, the, the threat, the continual threat of something happening that causes stress for them. For firefighters, as many as 30% report developing PTSD at some point in their career. Ambulance personnel and first responders across the world have consistently higher rates of PTSD than the general population. R rates have been reported as high as 20%. Healthcare professionals also have higher rates of PTSD than the general population, an estimated about 22%, especially for those who work in places like the ICU, the ER, or who come in contact with sexual assault survivors. And mental health providers also have high rates of PTSD due to things like threats of violence from patients and also have really high rates or can have really high rates of things like secondary traumatic stress, vicarious traumatization, compassion fatigue. Photojournalists not only report higher rates of PTSD than the general population, but only a quarter of them say that they have any access to mental health care services through their work. And war correspondents report PTSD rates as high as 30%, um, largely due to the increased rates of being abducted or killed while on assignment. War correspondents, oh, I'm sorry, an astounding 59% of photojournalists in combat zones report symptoms of PTSD. And of course, we can't ignore the intersectionality of people's different identities and how this adds to their experiences of stress. So being in any one of these professions and then also being part of a marginalized group increases the likelihood that you have already experienced trauma or that you will experience more trauma. You know, I, I sometimes think and have worked with folks who are, you know, a journalist who's part of the LGBTQIA community who's covering anti-trans bills. Um, I've had clients who were first responders and who are part of the AAPI community responding to anti-Asian hate and violence. I've worked with um, law enforcement personnel who are Jewish and respond to anti-Semitic hate crimes. 
I have a woman journalist who covered the January 6th insurrection and was a direct target of violence for being part of liberal media. So we can't ignore that for those with marginalized identities who also serve in a role where they're gonna undoubtedly face trauma, their stress is additive and it accumulates daily. And sadly, some of these folks will receive little to no training on what they're gonna endure or how to cope with it afterwards. Some of them will receive training, but it might be inadequate. So first responders and frontline workers, of course there's training on how to deal with violence and medical emergencies, but there was no training that was available on helping people die alone in a hotel room without their families. Um, due to the pandemic, or being separated from their own families and having to sleep in the garage, or watch their coworkers and trusted friends die from the very illness that they were trying to treat. Police officers obviously receive a lot of training on facing traumatic situations, but I have to believe there's no training ever adequate for responding to a school shooting. Firefighters are, receive tons of training, but you know that with increasing climate change, fires are increasing. And obviously firefighters are not just responding to fires, but are often the first responders on the scenes of accidents and natural disasters. Ambulance drivers, paramedics, EMTs are also the first on the scene, um, or they are working tents for protests, witnessing violence, and many junior EMTs are doing so at the age of 14. My best friend's son was a junior EMT and worked an aid tent at the March for Our Lives rally in DC. And while he was fine um, and the, the rally went off um, without any violence, they still had to prepare for counter protesters or possible gun violence there. And I can't imagine that a 14 year old is gonna receive adequate training on what to expect with that. For journalists, this has been astounding to me that many are in hostile environments or are sent on assignment to hostile environments with no preparation at all. They might even be financially responsible for their own gear, for their own cameras and equipment. Many have no tactical gear whatsoever, or it might be outdated, or if they have it, they haven't been trained how to use it or use it properly. Hostile environment trainings are often provided by outside agencies and so not accessible to many, um, unless you are one of the lucky few, and I emphasize few, whose jobs will pay for that training for you. And WMATA workers, as I'm learning, they receive some training on how to respond to medical emergencies, but they are certainly not trained for how to deal with um, disruptive passengers who spit on you, who make threats to you or to other passengers. They're certainly not trained for what it's like when somebody jumps in front of your bus or train. And for us, for those of us who are mental health professionals in the audience, I mean, who here received training in how to help others while struggling ourselves? What was it like to treat individuals traumatized by COVID and societal issues while simultaneously experiencing those things ourselves? Like I said earlier, I knew I wanted to be a therapist and work with trauma. And one of the reasons that I chose to work with veterans was my way to give back. Um, 
But the other reason was because it allowed me to do the work that I love with some professional distance. You know, I am unlikely to be in an active war zone or deployed and spend 18 months away from my family. So it gave me some of that distance to still do the work. But then cue COVID and social injustices and uh, climate change and gun violence. And then suddenly for me being um, an Asian person and knowing that anti-Asian hate is rose by 145% in 2019 and 2020, being biracial and being the child of an immigrant and sending my kids to school and worrying about my family members who are in the healthcare field. Suddenly, I did not have any distance at all. I mean, I was literally doing therapy from a computer on a folding table in my bedroom uh, when COVID first started. And I was, you know, looking into the lives of my clients and they were looking directly back into my life. There was zero professional distance at that point. And when my healthcare professional clients were worried about how to, um, how to work with this disease, how to save lives, my family members were struggling in the same way. When my clients were wondering, how do I explain active shooter drills to my kindergartner? I was worried about the exact same thing. When my BIPOC clients were worried about feeling safe on the street, I was worried about the exact same thing. I was actually also researching jobs in New Zealand because I still was worried about these things and still remain worried about these things. So again, no professional distance. You know, even with training, it can teach you how to respond in the moment, but again, not, to, not knowing what to do afterwards. And I know that for me, as a mental health professional, I never received any training period on how to help others while st struggling myself. And as we may know, as you may all know, either from lived experiences or work experiences, these are the impacts of PTSD and unprocessed trauma. I'm not gonna go over all of them. I just wanted to highlight that how does this play out if you're experiencing any of these things, the social impacts, the, the cognitive impacts, the physical and emotional, and then you have to go to work the next day. Especially when those you're working with might not have experienced the same things. You know, we know that working with veterans, one of the hardest transitions they face is going into civilian life, partly because you've lost that common core of experiences with the people that you're around. That's so key to the military experience. But what if your everyday job is with maybe people who have not experienced the same things that you have? You know, if your graveyard shift counterpart didn't work on um, those victims of gun violence, probably your sophomore year classmates did not work a protest or rally that weekend. You know, your spouse may say that they had a busy and exhausting day, but they didn't listen to seven people back to back talk about the worst things that have happened to them in their lives. You know, your coworkers might not have been assigned to cover the Pulse nightclub shooting or Monterey Park. So 
you end up retreating inward, especially since so many of these folks don't also have access to mental health care services. Or even if they do have access, again, it becomes a liability to seek them out. So you retreat inward, and then shame starts to grab a hold. And it can impact our jobs as well, and our organizations. PTSD, for any of us who work in this field, we know that trauma is sometimes inevitable, but PTSD really requires this experience of shame and of hiding things. It's the secrecy um, that, that really drives the symptoms. And secrecy will always breed shame. It will always make things worse. It'll drive people to cope in unhealthy ways. It'll make them not show up for work. It'll drive them to view other people as hostile, which is not always inaccurate, um, and, but it'll cause them to close in on themselves and attempt to battle those hidden wounds on their own and hide from those around them. And sadly, but through no fault of our own, I think our lack of training as mental health professionals can sometimes exacerbate this. You know, we may need to refer clients out to specialty care, um, but that can also increase this idea that trauma survivors are too complicated or too difficult or too severe to work with. And while that might be true in some cases, it's a misconception that I think we need to work to undo because 70 to 90% of us are gonna experience trauma and it's already hard enough to have survived trauma without then being stigmatized for surviving trauma and to be labeled difficult or hard or risky. So what can we do, whether or not you are a mental health clinician, um, and I do realize I'm probably preaching to the choir here, I don't think any of you would be here if you weren't already trying to do some of this work or doing this work, um, but I did wanna go over a few things that I think can be helpful just in case, um, things that we can do to help trauma survivors. So the first is implementing trauma-informed care approach. Whether you're working in a clinic or customer service or as a mental health clinician, that trauma-informed care approach is a process by which a program, an organization, or a system realizes how ubiquitous trauma is, its impacts, and pathways for recovery recognizes signs of trauma in ourselves, but also in others and in our communities, responds by fully integrating knowledge about trauma into policies and procedures, and resists re-traumatization for those that we serve or those that we interact with. Because what happens when we are not trauma-informed? People can be re-traumatized unless we are steeped in the principles of trauma-informed care. And the risk of PTSD increases when those who are not trauma-informed interact with people who are trauma survivors. And as I've said many times, trauma at this point in our culture and at this point in our lives, trauma is almost a foregone conclusion but it's the shame and the invalidation and the stigma that can push trauma into PTSD. And that's why many evidence-based therapies um, really stress a lot of psychoeducation at the beginning of those therapies. 
There are some problems with evidence-based therapies as well, but one thing that they do right is really building the case to destigmatize the symptoms that people are feeling so that they don't feel abnormal for what they're experiencing. I wish that I had unlimited time to go over the six trauma-informed core principles. I mean, I wish this was built into every standard curriculum and every training. I mean, heck, I wish I could teach those classes, um, but I can't, or at least not yet. And so I wanted to at least go over these. The principles of trauma-informed care are, one, understanding trauma and stress. Not only what is trauma and what is PTSD, but also how do you explain that to a client or to a friend or family member in a non-pathologizing way? How do you normalize what they're experiencing so they no longer feel alone? Compassion and dependability. How do we recognize the horrors of trauma and offer ourselves compassion and kindness? Most of the people in the professions that I've been talking about hold themselves to an incredibly high standard. And the guilt and shame that can seep in when they've made a mistake or when something just goes wrong can be a direct link to developing PTSD. So how do we offer compassion to our clients, again, or to those we know who have experienced trauma? And how do we offer this to ourselves? Cultural humility and responsiveness. So there's a move now from moving away from this idea of cultural competence, because how could we ever be competent in a cultural, uh, in different cultures, and instead moving to an anti-racist stance that uh, emphasizes cultural humility, self-reflection, training, learning, continual growth, and an awareness of the socially privileged and socially oppressed identities that you hold and what others hold and then how they interact. Safety and stability. So how do we ensure that our policies, again, whether we work in clinics or in hospitals or organizations or in private practice, how do we ensure that our policies and our procedures are clear and transparent, that we don't overpromise and then underdeliver? and that clients know how their feedback will be used if we, if we ask for feedback at all? How do we emphasize things like informed consent and build trust with those whose trauma has told them that trusting is life-threatening? Collaboration and empowerment. Where and in what ways can we give our clients agency and choice, even if those choices are limited? But given that trauma robs us of our power, it is critically important that we give agency back where possible. And resiliency and recovery. So resiliency, which I'll talk about later, is the ability to adapt to different life stressors and change. Recognizing that change is continual, that what worked for you before may not work for you now. And then how do we foster resilience so that life is not just focused on getting back to baseline, but that vitality is present? So taking these principles of trauma-informed care into account, how might we approach working with clients who have professional trauma? Well, one way is working with those who have professional trauma is very similar to working with veterans, but one difference can be, of course there are exceptions, 
is that by and large, uh, the trauma that veterans have experienced happened in the past, whereas those with professional trauma, they may be going back to work the very next day and encountering more. So working with those who have professional trauma is a little bit more like treating acute stress disorder and then bolstering resources for prevention. Unfortunately, there, are, there is some literature about how best to work with folks who have experienced recent trauma. So, and these mirror um, some of those six trauma-informed uh, principles. So first is establishing safety. So if someone's on assignment or if they know a difficult shift is coming up, um, how can they establish safety for their basic needs? I think it's also important to remember to take a culturally humble approach and not assume that the resources that are available to one person is gonna be available to everyone. We can give psychoeducation about normal reactions to trauma, so normalizing and depathologizing, help people understand stress and trauma and how it impacts the body, give information about how triggers are formed, about the fight, flight, freeze reaction, help them anticipate reactions to strong physiological reminders of trauma. Encouraging general non-avoidance. Avoidance is a natural outcome when we've experienced trauma, but gently encouraging things um, like skills building, emotional labeling so that they can put words to their experiences, um, helping them not avoid uh, physiological reminders or things that are safe. Again, remembering that what is safe is, um, is subjective depending on if you have a marginalized identity or not. Enhancing perceived social support. So this is huge. The literature on this is crystal clear. However a client defines social support is fine because it is really the perception of social support that is the key marker here. And that helps in establishing safety and stability. Meaning making. And I don't mean find the silver lining. <laughs> That is never proven to be helpful, but how are we making meaning out of the experiences that we've had? And if you are a healthcare or mental health professional, this isn't something that you would necessarily do an intervention around. It might just be a couple open-ended questions about how are you making sense of this experience? How is it fitting into your uh, worldview um, and what you expected to happen? and encourage clients to exert control about how much information they share about their trauma and with whom, in including us. So if a client does want to share the sights and sounds and smells and tastes and, and go into great detail, that's fine. If they don't, that's fine too. The key there is they get to choose. And this is actually where um, some previous therapies went a little awry, like critical incident stress debriefing, that there was an emphasis on we need to get our stories out. And that actually was re-traumatizing for a lot of clients. Giving them choice is what's important. So that's recent trauma. But what about those folks who, again, might know that they're coming up on a difficult assignment or going into a difficult shift? How can we help them prepare for trauma? 
This was something that came up a lot in my training on working with journalists because, again, they may know that they're going into a conflict zone or they may know when they're about to cover a trial or a march or a protest or a rally. And of course, you know, we never know if something's going to go sideways, but in the case that we, that we do, this can be helpful for a client to help them think through what do they need to be doing before that assignment, during that assignment, and then after the assignment. So before the assignment, um, you know, what do you need to do to get into the right mindset? Do you need to do grounding, meditations? Do you need to have a transitional object with you? Do you need to buy tactical gear? What do you need on hand for when you come home that night or later that week? During the assignment, what do you need to be aware of? Who's with you so that you can um, rely on them and trust them to have your back? What signs and markers in the crowd do you need to be aware of? When are you gonna call it and prioritize your own safety over getting the story? That's a really hard one working with journalists. And then after the assignment, you know, what do you need to do to decompress? Who do you need to grab coffee with? How many sessions this week are we going to need to have to decompress and kind of talk about what happened? How do you need to reestablish safety and foster resiliency? What short-term and long-term strategies do you need to engage in? What do you need to do to release some of that pent-up energy that the body holds and carries? Another thing to consider when working with those who have experienced professional trauma is um, some of them, again, like I had mentioned, might be coming in less with signs of trauma and PTSD themselves, but instead secondary trauma, compassion fatigue, vicarious traumatization. This is a dense slide, I apologize. I'm gonna summarize it so you don't have to read it. <laughs> but listed here are some terms that are related to indirect trauma. Um, so specifically, the things that can happen when we are empathically engaging with people who have survived trauma. So vicarious trauma is the accumulation of stress due to continual empathic engagement with people who have survived. Secondary traumatic stress looks almost identical to PTSD in reaction to somebody's uh, traumatic experiences. Compassion fatigue is really similar to vicarious traumatization, but specifically involves the reduced ability to empathize with people. And then burnout is kind of the catch-all term that isn't specific to working with indirect trauma. Uh, it can happen in any setting, um, although does tend to happen, again, in these professions most frequently. And ways to intervene for vicarious traumatization, secondary traumatic stress, compassion fatigue, it's a mouthful, um, are things like fostering resiliency, which I'm going to get to in another slide, enhancing social support, having agency over the things that you can control when possible, and developing self-compassion. All things that I'll talk about a little bit later, but I wanted to just go over another factor that comes up frequently when working with those with professional trauma and that's moral injury. And I think Dr. Nash might have been the keynote speaker last year or the year before. Okay, I'm so jealous for anyone who got to hear him speak. I will not do it justice, but I will do my best. Um, a quick definition of moral injury from Dr. Brett Litz is per uh, perpetrating, failing to prevent, 
bearing witness to or learning about acts that transgress deeply held moral beliefs and expectations. And the conflict that's central in moral injury doesn't have to be religiously based. When we are in conflict between what our expectations about humanity and goodness are, and then what actually happens, we are in danger of experiencing moral injury. So for healthcare professionals who had to deny chemotherapy to patients because we were out of beds and resources, this is breeding ground for moral injury. Um, for, for first responders who have to make impossible choices and then learn about the results of those choices, again, these are, this is ripe ground for, for moral injury. And then there are also contexts that can add to our vulnerability to experiencing or developing a moral injury. So here are some of those contexts. When we work with vulnerable people, uh, like journalists do, or healthcare professionals do, or first responders, or uh, ambulance personnel. When we are emotionally unprepared for the work and for what we're gonna face, like anyone who's likely to encounter trauma um, but not be trained adequately on how to deal with it. When we lack social support, like those who feel isolated and shamed and who aren't able to talk about their experiences for fear of losing their job, or for those who experience complex traumatic situations. So like literally everyone that we've been talking about today, this is all um, fertile ground for experiencing moral injury. And we're now seeing the rise of this in healthcare professionals in particular. So healthcare professionals will often say um, that they're not doing enough or that they could have done more or worked harder and while research suggests that moral injury is usually the lack of systemic resources, we tend to believe that it's a personal failing. And our healthcare professionals, this um, staggered me, are now experiencing rates of moral injury that is commensurate with those of post 9-11 combat veterans. So again, how do we bring all of this together? Well, one way to employ those six trauma-informed principles um, and remain trauma-informed with working with those who have professional um, trauma and moral injury is to be mindful of what we consider to be their most traumatic incident. Um, for those of us who have had the privilege of working with veterans, you know, how many times have, have we heard, you know, yes, there were, there was the bullets and the blood and the bombs, but it was that look on that kid's face and that's what sticks with me. Or I knew I was sending people into a no-win situation, but that service member was the same age as my sibling. Those are the things that, that can stick with us and it can be re-traumatizing if we as healthcare professionals or mental health professionals assume that Oh, well, it had to have been that that was your most traumatic incident. So I've actually started to just completely stay away from that term and instead ask things like, you know, what bothers you the most? What sticks with you the most? When you close your eyes at night, what comes into your mind that you've desperately been trying to avoid all day? And taking our cues from them, again, giving agency and power back to those who have survived trauma. 
We also have to be more diligent to create safety and practice from a, a frame of non-judgment, I mean, really for all of our clients, but particularly for those who have experienced trauma. And we can't scrutinize every decision that was made because it was made under the absolute worst of circumstances and the client's already doing that enough themselves. And we may need additional support as we struggle alongside our clients. So treatment might need to be more complex. I think the keynote speech from this morning was about a combined program with chaplains um, uh, to help with things like moral injury. Treatment might need to involve other professionals um, or might just need to involve more um, parts. There's a treatment called adaptive disclosure that's been developed partly for the treatment of moral injury. And it combines aspects of cognitive processing therapy and exposure therapy and meaning making and cognitive restructuring. We might need to have more tools in our toolbox. But the good news, again, I'm sorry for the dense slide, but I will summarize that when we do use a trauma-informed approach to working with professional trauma, something really amazing can occur. We can actually foster and grow and become more resilient as therapists ourselves, but we can also foster this in our clients who are in the helping profession. So the better that they're doing, the better that we're all doing. So these are some terms of resilience when working with indirect trauma. Resilience is the ability to change and grow in the face of trauma. Positive coping is the process, um, I'm sorry, of, of actively reflecting on stressful environments, developing ways to cope with them. Post-traumatic growth is growth that happens as the direct result of experiencing trauma. Compassion satisfaction, I'm gonna actually touch on this in another slide, so I'll come back to it. Vicarious resilience are positive shifts that occur when we empathically engage with trauma survivors. So this is meaningful not only for those of us who are mental health professionals or who work with trauma survivors generally, but for our clients because they are also working with trauma survivors, so they can also impact, uh, experience these positive impacts as well. And we, in ourselves, and also we can foster this in our clients, we can achieve something called compassion satisfaction, which is the balance to compassion fatigue. And some of the factors that can kind of push us down the path of compassion satisfaction are things like having collegial support, um, having uh, self-care and good self-care practices, resilience development, having social support in your everyday life. And then the output of compassion satisfaction are things like maintenance of empathy and increased performance and increased competency and meaningful care. And isn't that what we want for our first responders and our healthcare professionals and our WMATA Metro bus drivers to be feeling. And I know that's why I do this work as well, because of the deep satisfaction that I feel when I get to help someone. And it's the same reason that many of the people in these professions do this work as well. Because even though this work does come with risks, it also comes with tremendous rewards. 
So again, how can we foster resilience in ourselves and in our clients? I am not gonna go over all of these, but I did wanna highlight a couple. We can acknowledge the broader socio-political systems that contribute to the experiences of trauma because that helps take it away from a personal failing and instead helps us see that um, there are broader issues going on. Mindfulness care practices or really any practice that helps us connect with our bodies can be incredible for fostering resilience because trauma takes us out of our body and anything that we can do to safely reconnect fosters resilience. Increasing agency and control where possible. Again, there might not be times where it's possible and acknowledging that when it happens without self-blaming or judging ourselves is incredibly important. Connecting with others, finding meaning. Again, meaning making is not find the silver lining in the horrible thing that happened, but Again, how do I make sense of these experiences without blaming myself and judging myself? Unplugging, being in nature, spiritual renewal, and true self-care. So true self-care is not just about doing activities. I mean, those are helpful. Do yoga, everyone should do yoga. But it's really about actively looking at your life and deciding to um, change patterns or intergenerational patterns that have been there. There's a term um, by Kristen Neff, um, who is a, one of the foremost researchers on self-compassion. She's now talking about fierce self-compassion and how being active and making change combined with the tenderness and compassion can really um, bolster resilience. Okay, so a quick reminder of our six core principles of being trauma-informed, so understandings, trauma, and stress, compassion and dependability, cultural humility and responsiveness, safety and stability, collaboration and empowerment, and resiliency and recovery. So how do we translate all of this into some actionable change? Well, I'm gonna leave you with some questions for consideration, and I encourage you, no matter what you're setting, no matter what it is um, that you do to work with trauma survivors, to consider and, and reflect on these and ways that you might be able to implement some of these things in your work. How can I further understanding of trauma for myself, my colleagues, my clients, my clinics, my family, my community, what is a next step in cultivating cultural humility? Where can I notice the impact of culture and systemic inequities? How do I communicate informed consent to my clients or just make sure that my um, policies and procedures are transparent? How can I give them more choice and more agency? How can my clinic or clinical processes or care be more empowering and collaborative? Where's there time for compassion for myself or for others in my day? And what can I integrate into my day or week or month or year to foster the development of resilience in myself or of that in others? So I imagine that most of you, like me, 
got into this field or chose to work with survivors of trauma or chose to learn more about survivors of trauma because you want to help heal the hurts that have happened, the hurts that's been caused in the most egregious ways. And the work that we do when working with trauma survivors is incredibly important. And when we work to heal those who heal others, we have the ability to indirectly impact everyone that they then come in contact with. And the ripple effects of that are endless. So I am deeply grateful for the work that I'm privileged to do and equally grateful to have been here today. And thank you so much. I welcome any questions or thoughts or comments. A reminder, um, like earlier, our virtual audience cannot hear you unless you speak into a microphone. So if you have a question or a comment you'd like to make, please raise your hand and we'll get a microphone over to you so you can ask your question. Hi, Dr. Didian. Um, my name is Jill Wolf um, and I'm work with student veterans a lot. And um, I had a question just basically, how is um, your organization funded? Is it still on? Oh yeah, there it is, okay. Um, we are a private practice. So um, right now we are mainly, um, clients are mainly paying out of pocket, but then we do have agreements with things like the Crime Victims Advocacy Fund, um, again, certain organizations that will pay for things like WMATA, um, folks to receive treatment and things like that. Also, one of the reasons that we did expand into having a training program with our psychology fellow and our psychology externs is so that we can offer low and no fee services to communities and individuals who would otherwise face huge barriers to care. Thanks for listening to an episode of The Rewind, a podcast series by the Howenstein Center for Presidential Studies. The audio for this episode was captured by Mark Washburn of Gyrus Media. This episode was produced and sound engineered by Maddie Miller. The Howenstein Center for Presidential Studies at Grand Valley State University is inspired by Ralph Howenstein's life of leadership and service and is dedicated to raising a community of ethical, effective leaders for the 21st century. For more information on our center, the Peter C. Cook Leadership Academy, or the Common Ground Initiative, visit our website at www.gvsu.edu. To keep up with our current events and recurring initiatives, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn, all of which can be found linked below. If you liked this episode, consider giving us a review and rating so we can be found by other podcast listeners. Again, thanks for listening.